This podcast and content posted by Dr. Judith Joseph is presented solely for general informational, educational, and entertainment purposes. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast or website is at the user's own risk. It is not intended as a substitute for the advice of a physician, professional coach, psychotherapist, or other qualified professional diagnoses or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical or mental health condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. Dr. Kelly Kasperson is a urologic surgeon, author, sex educator, and top international podcaster whose mission is empowering women to live their best love lives. Kelly identified the need for better resources and developed a sex education membership that covers topics like sexual health, intimacy, mind work, and the science of desire. She combines education, humor, and candor in her podcast, You Are Not Broken, where she dismantles the myths people have learned and normalizes healthy, enjoyable sex worth desiring. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Dr. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me today. Well, I mean, it's such a pleasure. We ran into each other on a panel, and here we are. It's meant to be. <laughs> it is meant to be. And you're a urologist. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know what that is, and people think that urologists are only for men and the prostate. They have no idea that there are actually women urologists for woman issues. So what is an, a urologist? Yeah, you're absolutely right. People have no idea. So urology is the study or the surgery of the genital urinary organs. So kidneys, ureter, bladder, and then typically, stereotypically, it was male genitalia. But really, as more women have come into urology, right now about 10% of practicing urologists in America are female. We really care about the vulva, the urethra, all the external female genitalia that often do get ignored in the gynecologist office. I think a lot of people don't even know what that is. Can you break it down for us? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard, right? Because most people get their medical knowledge on social media. And a lot of social media platforms block words like clitoris, vulva, vagina. That's why podcasts are really the safe place for those words, because you're not going to get censored by normal and anatomic body parts, right? So if we can't even communicate and know what, where our parts are and what they are, we're totally hamstrung when it comes to talking to our partner about any issues or our doctor. That seems like a huge block of information, like in psychiatry, if I want to use the word suicide, I have to say unalive. And like, people don't like that because they're like, unalive is not the real thing. Like suicide is really important to talk about, but we can't even talk about things like that. How do urologists get around that? Yeah. I mean, I would love to meet somebody at this big social and be like, can I just, can you just give me two words? Like <laughs> maybe three, like to be able to say sex, right? So I get around saying sex by calling it intimate intimate life when you're having intimacy but to me i'm like it's sex yeah. like it's it's hard and you know the the eggplant emojis and stuff like i just don't oblige but i haven't gotten kicked off yet but to me even talking about medical issues and the need for vaginal estrogen right is like i call it pelvic estrogen or local estrogen instead of vaginal estrogen interesting wow Amazing. Different vocabulary. Yeah. Well, we're not going to be censored here. Good. <laughs> we're going to talk about the things that people come to therapists to talk about that they maybe don't even ask their gynecologist or their urologist if they're fortunate to find one because there are just so few of you. One of the things I get asked a lot about is STDs. And there's a lot of shame around STDs. 
Some STDs are curable, but there's even shame there. What do you see in your practice when people talk about these things? Yeah, it's really, I mean, we are in a culture of a purity culture, a perfectionist culture, really. So the view of like, it's been, I've been tainted or I'm now unlovable. And it's really, you know, I think the sex educators out there that are really trying to get away from the stigma, one way they're doing it is in helping people with dialogue and how to talk to partners about it. And also switching it from a disease, which we think of as permanent and chronic to an infection, which is more treatable and can resolve. I love that. Just that small shift in STD to STI can do so many things for the psyche. Mm -hmm. And also like the long term and the short of it, even if you may have an STI that doesn't necessarily get cured, two things can be true. You can have an STI and you can be lovable and you can have a healthy relationship. Sexual trauma is something that I see all of the time. It's a very, you know, sensitive topic, mm-hmm. but it's important and many people don't talk about it because one, avoidance is one of the symptoms of trauma. You don't want to talk about things that are painful because it hurts. Mm-hmm. Also there's shame. One of the symptoms of PTSD is shame, guilt, blame. People don't want to talk about it. But it's important because if you don't talk about it, you can't heal. And there's this huge mind-body connection. So If someone has a history of trauma, especially sexual trauma, they may not realize ways in which that manifests in the body. Have you heard of like The Body Keep the School? Yeah, I love it. Love that book. Right. It's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful book. What do you see in your field where you see this association between sexual trauma and physical manifestation? Yeah. Well, I can give you an example that I've seen in my clinic. I had a middle-aged woman come in for some urology complaint. I can't even remember. So I'm doing a pelvic exam. And so many people want to know that they're normal. Am I normal? Am I normal? And you simply can't figure that out on the internet right? There is no normal that isn't blocked or banned from a purely educational, right? So these people are in the dark. She comes in, I do an exam and I say, hey, everything looks really normal. Even using the language normal instead of good, mm-hmm. right? So practicing those words, like everything looks normal. And she's like, really? And like, was kind of not believing it. And I'm like, on the bell-shaped curve of the vulva, you're right in the middle, wonderfully average, right? And her partner was in the room and he's like, I told you, Everything's fine down there. And what had happened to her decades earlier is somebody had told her how abnormal she looked. Mm. And it stuck with her the rest of her life until she finally had somebody to say, listen, I look at vulvas all the time and you are forgettable in a very wonderful way. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Even just like something that, you know, a non-expert had told her years ago stuck with her and is currently affecting her current relationship, wow. right? So these things are very uh, profound in how they affect us. And pain is something that shows up physically and mentally. One of the things that I've seen along the years, because I've, I've done a lot of PTSD studies, is the pain with sex related to trauma that people just don't even put together. Mm-hmm. They don't even realize how connected those two are. And they're missing out on one of the, I think, basic joys in life, you know, sexual pleasure, because they can't tolerate the pain during sex. And they're not aware as to how that's connected to trauma. Mm-hmm. So in my work, I do a lot of trauma-focused therapies and work closely with EMDR therapists. What are some of the physical or somatic type of therapies that someone can do or utilize if they're having some of that discomfort and pain with sex that's 
rooted in trauma. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I recommend, just because I'm coming from a urologist lens, is see somebody who's trained, who can say this isn't a hormone issue. Pelvic floor is also incredibly important in pain. Do you have pelvic floor? Do we need to incorporate a physical therapist? And then really working with those therapists, the more cognitive EMDR therapists, to help root you back into your body. So many people want to basically leave their body or dissociate. And really where the orgasm and pleasure lives is in the body in the present moment. So it's really learning new skills to say, I want to have this in my life. What are the tools I need? Who's my team? Because it might be a couple of different players to help you be on your team. And people don't enjoy sex if they're not happy. It's actually one of the symptoms on the postpartum depression scale. One of the symptoms has to do with sex and enjoying it. Why is that on a depression scale? Because if you're not happy, if you're stressed, you're not going to enjoy you know, a basic physical pleasure like sex. Like you're not going to enjoy food. You're not going to enjoy sleep, you know, and social interactions. Aside from depression, what are other things that you see in terms of mental health conditions affecting sexual pleasure? Yeah, I think a big one is anxiety. When people's, and it's going again into the present moment, right? When people's thoughts are racing or they kind of get distracted. ADHD is another one where they're like, I just can't stay focused enough for the pleasure of sex. Yeah, I would say anxiety and ADHD are two the common things I see kind of interfering with that present moment in the body pleasurable experience. And also like the distraction with social media as well with patients who have ADHD. Mm-hmm. They'll say that, you know, it's just sex requires too much work. And I'm like thinking... And, you know, I never thought about it that way. That's why you learn so much from your patients. Like, it requires you to be attentive because if you want to enjoy the experience, the other person has to be a focus, right? Mm-hmm. You're focusing on each other. Yeah. So if you're someone who gets easily distracted, let's say it's hard for you to switch gears. You were doing something beforehand and now it's time for sex. Your mind may still be in that other event and yep. you haven't fully disconnected. So you're not present. You can't get aroused as easily or you can't please the other person. Mm-hmm. Um, and also being hyperactive. So like you may be too fidgety or restless and that kind of like ruins the mood. Mm-hmm. So knowing these things helps you to plan for sex. So you may not have like a big project before. You sometimes have, you have to plan for it, right? I tell my patients that like we think that sex is spontaneous and that that's romance, but no, like many times as working mothers, as people who have busy careers, we have to make space for it, just like you would plan for an outing Mm -hmm. and you would plan for your favorite TV show, you have to plan for sex. Absolutely. And I think the important, you know, things that I thought were woo-woo or, you know, bullshit as being trained as a Western medicine surgeon sort of thing and seeing my opinion on them now is the ability to go from that sympathetic nervous system to that parasympathetic nervous system and realizing enjoyable sex exists in a relaxed, safe, calm sort of uh, arena, but also nervous system. And learning those skills to be like, I just came from running a business, running my kids around, packing the dinner. And then my partner says, do you want to have sex? You're like, of course not. i am still got this parasympathetic drive going on. But what do I need to do to shift? Because I know that our sexual relationship is important. I want to prioritize it. But I got to work on my body and mind to shift into it an acceptable nervous system state. Awesome. And I would have told you five years ago, like, I did, because I didn't know how to do that, right? To me, I'm like, maybe there's something to this. And now I'm like, ah, oh, it's super important. Years ago, before I switched into psychiatry, I was very clinical as well, very surgical. I used to be an anesthesiologist. Psychiatry has just opened up like a whole world. I'm like, why doesn't everyone learn this stuff, you know? Totally. <laughs> and in medical school, it's like, oh, the psychiatrists, there's just so like head in the clouds. No, they, they've got it figured out. They're mm-hmm. the ones we should be following, you know? Yeah. 
there's a big, big misconception that women have the lower sex drive, men have the higher sex drive. But what I'm seeing in my practice, especially in middle life and older, sometimes it's the opposite situation. So That's right. You're the one who sees it all, right? Yeah. What What's really the deal? Yeah. What's the truth? So it's a great topic because so many people think they're the problem. And I love talking about this to be like, no, 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 you're not. We just got to learn a little bit. So some studies will say the high desire person is female a third of the time. Some studies will say it's 50-50. And there's actually a stigma around the woman having a higher desire, right? It's like, that's almost like the embarrassing one. Mm-hmm. And I say, Desire is so unique like fingerprints, right? It's like, how's your health? How are your hormones? How's the relationship, right? And so many, what we do with female desire specifically is we hold a bar at where the male partner is and then she revolves around his desire. We normalize the male as what the desire should be, which once you see that, you're like, oh, wow. So her desire is often too low or too high compared to where we say his is the perfect one. Wow. So I love blowing that up a little bit. Um, and then to think, you know, the sex therapists are the ones who taught me is desire is a couple's issue. This is not one person's issue. It's what amount of sex is good for the relationship. And what do people get out of sex, right? That's why it's so cool to talk about. It's like, do you know why your partner likes having sex? Mm-hmm. Is it a stress relief? It's how I know I'm loved. It's how I feel safe. It's how I feel connected, right? It's like they might even be wanting sex a different amount of times because they're getting different things out of it and you have no idea. And also we don't have that language. I treat children and adults and a lot of times when a child is exhibiting, you know, curiosity about sex, a parent is like, can I meet with you? Because I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And and many times you learn that, well, I learn that it's a cultural issue. In some cultures, their parents didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And it was something that you just learned eventually. Uh, it's something that if you talked about it when you were younger, you were considered rude or disrespectful or dirty. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of psychoeducation there with younger children. Mm -hmm. But also what I'm finding in my practice is that children are learning about sex in areas where they probably shouldn't be learning about it. Mm-hmm. So um, a child will share like uh, porn. And mm-hmm. and I when I meet with the families, I'm not like porn is bad. I say, listen, porn is out there mm-hmm. and porn can be positive for some and negative for others, mm-hmm. but it's not for kids yeah. because children need to learn about sex in a safe environment mm-hmm. from people that they can ask questions to and not learn it in an unregulated environment where they could possibly have damaging images imprinted. And I've had those cases where I had to treat a young child with cognitive behavioral therapy and exposure therapy because they just had a lot of anxiety mm-hmm. about what they saw. But I do see a lot of shame from a cultural lens. Mm-hmm. And how do you address that from a culturally competent point of view when you're having patients in your office who don't have that language? They were never taught how to talk about sex. It just was something that you're supposed to figure out. How do you deal with that from a culturally competent? Yeah, it's such an important topic. So I tell parents that your kids are going to learn about sex. They are inherently curious. If they don't learn about sex from you, they will be learning about sex from the internet more than likely. So it's like their their interest is going to find ways to, to learn. Wouldn't we rather us be the one? And how I talk to parents is think of what your family values are. That, and, and how can you incorporate your values into the discussion mm-hmm. about what healthy bodies are, what healthy relationships are, what are our values and how that can they be fulfilled? And it's age appropriate, right? When they're really young, you just want to talk about body parts, that all body parts are healthy and they're good and some body parts make us feel good and that can be a gift, right? And, the, and what our boundaries are is also very important. 
And then as they get older, you can give them more and more details. But I think so many parents, they're so stressed because they're like, I need to know everything and I don't have the answers. And some of the most amazing conversations can be like, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'm going to find out and let's come back and I'll tell you what I've learned. And share a goofy story. Like when I was a kid, this is what I did. Oops. You know, yeah. like I wish I had these conversations. I'm so glad that this is happening right now. You're decreasing the stigma and the shame and you're encouraging curiosity because they're going to learn it. Mm -hmm. They may not learn it from you, but they're going to yeah. learn it somewhere. Right. An example for from me personally is my kid, I have two young girls and they're they're very curious about like, you know, how do babies, how are babies made? What happens to your body? And all they really wanted to know from me is what, what I tell them is dad and I will help you. If you do not want to have a baby, dad and I will help you not have a baby. They're very afraid about it. And, and so for us just to be like, we're going to be there for you and we're going to help you. Aww. Right. And, and I didn't need to get into all the details and how it happens and all of the, what, how do we help you? I'm just, I, dad and I are there for you oh, and we're going to help so you when your body gets older. And then they're fine and they're off playing with Legos, <laughs> right? So it's really like, make that connection. You don't have to tell them everything. You don't, you don't. My daughter recently asked me, mom, what's menopause? And I was like, <laughs> well, it's when you no longer have your period. And what's the period? And then we went into this whole thing mm -hmm. and I just allowed her to ask those questions. And she was just like, you could see her brain going. And I was like, you can always ask me. Yeah. And I love it. You know, yeah. nothing is off limits. And then she went back to playing with it all. Yeah, yeah. Then their attention is gone. And we're like still like, we can talk more. And they're totally gone. And it's like 31-minute conversations instead of like one three-hour conversation. It's like you don't have to give them the dissertation. And they can tell when you're lying. If you're like, oh, you don't need to worry about that. They're like, well, uh, yeah, what's now there? I want to know. Yeah. So I was raised Catholic mm -hmm. and it was very taboo. It was very not talked about. And so, of course, I'm the curious kid, right? Like yeah. what do adults not want to talk about? That mm -hmm. must be very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Pentecostal, Christian, mm -hmm. evangelical. You don't talk about sex. Don't talk about <laughs> you wait till you're married. Yep. Right? So I, we met at a menopause event and menopause is really important. My followers are in the range of 18 to 45. And I think a mistake is to not prepare your body and your mind for changes to come. And I don't think it's anyone's fault. I think that as a whole, society does not talk about issues with regards to women. Mm -hmm. So we don't know enough about sex, about our periods, about postpartum issues, about being pregnant. We just need more information. So yeah. what are some of the things that people should start to notice as they get older with regards to their body's sexual functioning changing? Yeah, very important question. And you're absolutely right. Like so many people think something's going to happen later. And in us failing to talk about menopause, we're failing to talk about perimenopause, right? Which is mid 30s right? Late 30s. Like, this is what's happening. I frame it as it's a gift to live long. Like, it's a gift that generations before us did not have. But now that we have that gift, we must understand what's happening to our body as we get more and more decades. So a big thing that people don't know, because they just think menopause is a hot flash, and then it's done, right? But menopause is really the cessation of ovaries making hormones. And that causes the hot flashes, that causes all the symptoms. Mm -hmm. A thing that happens in the pelvis is that estrogen and testosterone to a varying amount helps the formation of the vulva, the vagina, the bladder, and all the pelvic clitoris, all the pelvic structures. When those hormones start to change, and this change happens way before your period stops, you can get dryness, soreness, irritation, recurrent urinary tract infections, overactive bladder. None of those things make you feel like you, you want to jump in the sack. People think it's an infection. 
So they'll just get yeast infection treatments over the counter or get treated for urinary tract infections over and over and over. And they'll say the antibiotics don't help them, mm -hmm. right? Because they don't know that as these hormonal changes are happening, some people's bladders, vulvas, and vaginas change. About 50 to 80% of people post-menopause. Now we need more research. How come 30% of people don't have it, right? Mm -hmm. But the treatment can be over-the-counter moisturizers and lubricants. That does not put your hormones back, but it can relieve some of the dryness and irritation. Some some women will get like really tender cracks in the vulva, especially I call it the six o'clock spot. So pain with penetration mm. from a sexual standpoint. But the most effective treatment is replacing the hormones locally, and that's a vaginal estrogen product. In America, that is a prescription. It's over the counter in some countries, but really putting back the hormones to bring back the blood flow, the collagen, the integrity, and, and kind of get rid of that soreness and irritation, the inflammation really that, that happens with low estrogen. I was recently at a center that was like state of the art and they had all of this technology and they were showing me these machines and so forth. And I was like, is this really, is this a FDA approved? And I just, I just don't know. This stuff was not available when I was in medical school. And also in medical school, I probably had what a week of urology. Mm -hmm. And of that week of urology, only one day was the female urology. So it's mm -hmm. like, I have no idea what I'm right. looking at. What does this do? And they're like, oh, this is great for like people who are postpartum because like there are a lot of like incontinence issues and like the pelvic floor issues and my office is right next to a pelvic floor specialist and they do rehab for the pelvic floor and exercise and so forth so I had no idea that these technologies existed what is myth what is real what is yeah. evidence-based what is not yeah I mean I, there's more and more coming out all the time and there's various things from like pelvic floor trainers that cause more pelvic floor muscle contraction can work really well for stress incontinence even some urge incontinence I think where it gets murky and uncomfortable for me is when I see you know things that are not covered by insurance that aren't FDA approved being marketed to women to fix things that lasers just simply can't fix mm -hmm. like relationship issues desire issues body image issues low hormone issues right I just got a message from a woman yesterday on Instagram she's like before I found you and vaginal estrogen which costs twenty dollars <laughs> she's like I spent fourteen thousand dollars trying to fix this problem and I'm like we shouldn't have to remortgage our house to pay for this so I love new technology Urologists are on the forefront in a lot of areas in technology, but I always come back to protecting my woman and to be like, are you getting a comprehensive eval? Do you understand what this specifically will help and what it won't help so you don't get taken advantage of? Wow. Some yeah. people are doing it well. Some, pe mm -hmm. a lot, some people are not doing, I, I think, an ethical care for women. So how do you find out who's doing it the right way versus people who are doing oh, Answer things? that question. <laughs> answer that question, you'll break the internet. <laughs> That's true. Didn't mean to put you on the spot there. <laughs> I, I would say, again, I'm a urologist. I look at vulvas all day long, right. right? If somebody who really can assess your problem from a comprehensive plan of like, do you need pelvic floor physical therapy? Do you need hormones? Would a laser really help kickstart the, the health of your tissue, mm -hmm. right? Somebody who can kind of incorporate it into the care of your problems instead of just being like, well, I can give your crow's feet some Botox and would you like a vaginal laser? Oh, wow. So people who are not even trained in the area. Right are doing these procedures. Oh, absolutely. I would say they're doing the majority of these procedures just because there's so many more of them, mm -hmm. right? Than there are female urologists or qualified OB-GYNs. Scary. Mm -hmm. There are always online support groups for whatever, you know, like for the STIs, there are support groups for that, for sexual trauma. What are some of the online resources for people who 
are living every day with pelvic floor issues with painful sex and so forth. Are there yeah. any of those type of resources? As far as like pelvic floor physical therapy, hermanandwallace.org is an amazing place to go, both to get education about the pelvic floor, right? Like so many people are like, what the heck's a pelvic floor, <laughs> right? Like I can easily show you my bicep. I cannot easily show you my pelvic floor. People just know it hurts down there and they want solutions. So I think good pelvic floor education, is Herman and Wallace is a really nice one. An interesting resource that I just came across because I just met the, the founder of this company is Make Love Not Porn. Dot com, I believe. And they are basically normalizing what healthy communication, normal people, and what that looks like. And what I heard from the founder is that people who with a history of trauma can go in and at their own speed, learn what they want to learn and see who they need to see to be like, I see people who've had trauma who now have healthy sex lives. I think I, you know, I want that now. It's a very safe, curated, it's not manipulating anybody. It's really an educational platform for saying all bodies deserve pleasure, all bodies deserve healing. And that's just an amazing resource I recently came across. That's awesome. I've never heard of that. Thank it's, you it's, that. Very, it's been around for 15 years. Wow. It's insane that it, like, I just heard about it. That's why we need to talk to each other, right? Yep. Or else we don't know. Yep. One of the things that you said early in this talk was no one teaches us how to have sex or like sex education is delayed or we need a revamp. There was something that you said and it made me think about recently I gave a talk about how no one teaches us how to love. Like we just see what our parents do and then we go out in the world and then we hook we up just, with random do people. That. We figure yeah. it out and then before you know it, we're married with kids, you know, running down, getting a divorce and then we're doing it all over again. Yep. No one teaches us how to love. And oh, if beautiful. we all got pulled aside and when we were kids and we were learned about we learned about attachment and healthy attachment, avoid and anxious. If we learned about or continue to learn about sex, because I don't even think my sexual education in, in high school talked about all of these things we're talking about now, like how to communicate with someone, mm -hmm. boundaries, consent. How do you know that, you know, sex is pleasurable? How do you know that, you know, what you're looking at down there is normal, right? We don't talk yeah. about this. How to navigate desire discrepancies right. in a relationship, which is basically the norm. Right. Like if you are having sex with another human, you have different levels of desire. We need to normalize that. Are, we never get taught that in sex ed. What are some books that you recommend for that? Well, I wrote the book that I that didn't exist. Right. So I wrote the book called You Are Not Broken. Stop shooting all over your sex life. And I wrote it because I didn't learn this in medical school. I didn't learn this in residency. And as I started thinking this is incredibly important. And as a doctor, I don't know. I started reading all the books. And a lot of the books are either two in your face to, you know, they got stilettos on the cover and they're just too sexy. It's like, where do you learn in like an evidence-based practical way, right? And then a lot of the other books are really um, like science-y, right? Like they're written by PhDs for PhDs. So I wanted a funny, digestible, approachable, like you would want to share this with your partner or with your sister and just talking about our bodies and how to communicate and that that you're healthy and normal. So mine, a couple of other great books is Becoming Cliterate by Laurie Mintz. Mm, I uh, love that name. Yeah, it's so <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> it's, it's really brilliant. Um, Come As You Are is a bigger one about desire by Emily Nagoski. It's a great book that comes to mind. So yeah, there's a lot more resources now than there used to be. It's never too late to learn. That's I'm still learning. Me too. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I ask all of my guests about a time in their lives when they were killing it. They were like rock stars and everyone was like, oh my gosh, how do you do it all? You're great. You must have it all figured out. 
but you knew inside that, no, I'm struggling inside. You just don't know it. And how did you get through that? Yeah, I'd say it's about four, seven years into my practice. Um, I was bored, right? It's like by all intents and purposes, I own my own practice. I'm a successful surgeon, right? I've got, I've got the kids and I was bored. And I was like, is this just what you do? You just learn everything and then you just repeat and repeat. And, and it was like intellectually stilting for me. And I remembered when I was in residency, the, all the residents went over to this urologist's house and he said, beware of the seven-year itch. <laughs> He said, whether it's in your marriage or in your career, at year seven, you get complacent and it can be, you know, it, that'll take you down if you don't mind the seven-year itch. And so I was like, oh, yeah, oh, oh, I'm seven years in. So I had enough to be like, okay, this is kind of a normal process. You become an expert. And if you don't keep challenging yourself, you know, despair. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm just going to treat overactive bladder for the rest of my life, which is a great job, mm -hmm. but like was not fulfilling to me. And at that time, the universe just said, you're ready then, and gave me a patient with a sexless marriage that I was incredibly cared about. And from then, you know, the podcast, the book, the speaking, the TEDx, like because of her and me being ready. Wow. And I would say wonderful. now, like my life is, I'm never bored anymore. I'm never bored by those answers. The answers of people like you, I'm just like, every answer is so different and so good. Mm -hmm. And thank you to that one patient. Thank you if you're listening. Yeah. yeah. She and The cool thing is she knows who she is. Aww. And uh, it's a it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to share this, this life with her. We grow with our patients. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where can we find you? So the podcast is You Are Not Broken. And then on Instagram, I'm Kelly Casperson, MD. And my website's Kelly Casperson, MD. Awesome. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me.